0: Now, hear God's word from Revelation chapter 15, continuing our study in the book of Revelation. Pay close attention. This is God's holy word. "'Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the last seven plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete.' And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God and the song of the lamb saying, great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints, who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name for you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. After these things, I looked and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened and out of the temple came the seven angels having the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen and having their chests girded with golden bands. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with the smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the difficult parts. We thank you for the parts that are easier to understand. We pray that all of it might be a nourishment for us. And so as we enter these things to study them today... We need an extra measure of your spirit to apply them rightly, to understand them correctly. Uh, Give me your spirit. Fill me with your spirit, I pray, that I might articulate these things in such a way that they're helpful and they're useful and they increase our understanding of who you are and your character. Father in heaven, please strengthen us by this time in your word today. We pray in Jesus' name. amen. Amen. People of God, when. Children are very small. Their worlds are full of boundaries. For toddlers, there are more places they can't go than places they can go. The house is full of places and appliances and entire rooms that are off limits to children because of their immaturity, because of their need for supervision, because of their habit of breaking things and messing things up, because of their dirty hands and dirty feet. There are zones of the home that they can't enter. When I was a kid, my grandmother's house had a family room and it had a front room. The family room was open for everybody, but the boundaries of the front room were not to be transgressed by children ever. That's because the front room was a museum of flower arrangements and knickknacks and perfectly clean without a stray sock or a magazine, nothing out of place, no crumbs, no dust, so that if guests popped by, they would have a place to sit and you would look like you have your life together. It looks like everything's put together and everything's clean all the time. So occupying the space was forbidden to children. Maybe you could peek in there. Maybe you could you could get a glimpse, but you couldn't go in there. You couldn't play in there. You couldn't go waller on the furniture. And that was my grandmother's description of everything children did. We waller on the floor and we waller on the furniture and we go waller in the yard. And that's what we can't go waller on the nice furniture. So you could stand there and look and think what mysteries and what forbidden treasures are there in that room. But you'll never know. You'll never know because you'll never go in there because you're not allowed. And it's ingrained in you. We don't do that. We don't go in there. Well, in the Hebrew scriptures and under the old covenant, there were spaces that the vast majority of Israel in her immaturity, in her impurity, and in her sin, places she was forbidden to go. The vast majority of Israelites were not allowed to go into the tabernacle, into the Holy of Holies. Because of man's sin and because of God's holiness... And because of the great chasm between man in his sin and God's holiness, God set limits and boundaries that could not be transgressed. There always had to be a covering, a sacrifice, a veil, a shield between God and man for man's protection, lest the wrath of God break out from between the horns of the altar or break out from the Ark of the Covenant to consume man in his sin. And so when Adam and Eve were dismissed from the Garden of Eden, God set up two cherubim with flaming swords at the the entrance, at the boundary to keep them out of the garden sanctuary. So you can't just stroll back into the Garden of Eden. You just can't wander back into communion and fellowship with God. The only way back into peace with God is through fire and sword. That's what the cherubim have. And so if you wanna get back into fellowship with God, you need to cut up an animal and burn it up. Uh, you, you need a sacrifice. Um, the, the only way back into peace with God is through fire and sword. And later when God sets up his house, he sets up a place for his presence to rest on earth, for his place to dwell with his people in and on the Ark of the Covenant. The the covering, the lid of the Ark is called the mercy seat. That's The, the Ark was God's throne. It was, a, it was a seat. And the lid had two cherubim just like the cherubim that guarded the garden of Eden. And of course, inside the ark were the two tablets of the law. There was Aaron's rod. There was a pot of manna. But the only way that you knew those things were in there because Moses told you and Moses wrote those things down, but you couldn't just go take a look. You couldn't stroll inside the tabernacle and pull back the lid of the Ark of the Covenant and gaze what was at what was in there. When, when the Ark was moved from place to place, it had to be covered with the coverings of the tabernacle as it was transported. You couldn't mess with that. You couldn't play around with it. And at various times, people try to do goofy things. Like in 1 Samuel chapter 6, there's some men who try to look look at or in the Ark of the Covenant and they're consumed. 70 men die. They're struck and they're destroyed because they transgress a boundary. They're not supposed to uh, be messing with it. When the Ark was housed in the tabernacle, it was in a small room, as you know, the Holy of Holies, which was separated by a veil from the rest of the tabernacle and then the whole interior of the tabernacle was separated by another veil from the outer courtyard. And the courtyard was a, was a fence made of curtains all around the outer court of the tabernacle. The tabernacle itself had four layers of covering over the top of it. And all of these demonstrate that there are zones of holiness which require sacrifices and purifications and offerings just to come near to God. These veils stand as a protection, as a shield between you and the holiness of God. And so not just anybody was allowed to go into the most holy place. Not anybody could just go up into the holy of holies. No one could hang around and get a peek at what was inside there, inside the tabernacle. There was only one day a year... The Day of Atonement, when the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies before the ark, and he brought with him blood uh, of the offering, blood for the for the covering of all the sins of the whole nation last year, and also to bring incense, which represented the prayers of the people. So you come in there with with blood and you come in there with incense, and that the the priest could only do that, the high priest could only do that after offering sacrifices for himself and offering sacrifices for his family and washing with pure water and putting on a special uniform to go into into the most holy place. So there's several stages and steps and barriers and layers of protection between a sinful people and a holy God. And the point of all this is that under the old covenant, nobody, just sachets into God's presence. Nobody just wanders into God's presence. You need a covering between yourself and God. And the veils are a representative covering. The sacrifices are a temporary covering. God sees the blood of the sacrifices and he passes over. He doesn't pour out his wrath when he sees the blood of the sacrifices. All the cleansings that go on at the tabernacle in the temple are symbolic purifications, all pointing to, and covering us temporarily until we get the real covering, the perfect covering for sin, the real satisfaction for sin, who is the Lord Jesus. But you don't fool around. You don't fool around with these zones. If you don't take these zones of holiness seriously, you will die. Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, the priest, learned that the hard way. They monkeyed around with the formula of the incense. It wasn't what God prescribed. So fire comes out of the sanctuary of the Lord, comes out of out of the, the most holy place and devours them. So you don't cross the line. You don't go into places that are off limits. You don't transgress boundaries. And we learn that as children. And Israel is in an immature state under the old covenant. But eventually things are opened up and eventually you're allowed to use the stove. And eventually you're allowed to go into the front room. And eventually you're allowed to use dad's tools. And eventually you're allowed to drive the car. When you mature, you are invited in as you mature. And so when the sacrifice of Jesus was complete and as, as he's growing up humanity through the work of the gospel and Jesus finishes his work on the cross, what happens? The veil in the temple is torn. Now you can draw close to God. He's no longer keeping you at arm's length. In Jesus, God has drawn near to us. He has taken on human life, he's taken on human flesh and experience and human suffering, and he draws you near to him as he draws near to you. He pulls us close and draws us into his presence as long as we have the covering of the blood of Jesus, as long as we're in union with Christ. You still need a covering, but now you have a perfect one, and that is the Lord Jesus. Now, as a further demonstration, of the newly acquired access to God. In Revelation, the Apostle John is taken up into the heavenly courts, not just the earthly courts, not just the earthly holy place, but he's taken up into heaven's courts. And in chapter 15, as we just read, he sees right into the heart of the heavenly sanctuary. The Ark of the Covenant is opened and he can write down what he sees as angels start flying out of there out of God's court. And this event, this chapter transitions us to the next major section of the book of Revelation. Let's quickly recap where we've been in Revelation. So far in Revelation, John has been called up into heaven to see things that must shortly take place All of these events happen within that generation, as Jesus said in Matthew 24, 34. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. What Jesus talks about in Matthew 24, what the book of Revelation talks about are things which are surely to take place within this generation. And and so all of these events that John sees play out in, in symbol are events between the resurrection of Jesus and the final destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the temple. John has been called up into heaven. He sees the whole heavenly host rejoicing around the throne of God as Jesus takes up the book containing the curses of the covenant against apostate Israel. Jesus is the only one who can take up the book because he's the only one who's kept the covenant perfectly. And as he takes the seven seals off of the scroll, preliminary warning judgments fall on the land. And then he opens up the book and seven angels come with seven trumpets and trumpet out the contents of the book. And near the end of the trumpets, John himself is given a book to eat, to consume, and after John eats that book, John sees visions in the heavens that he communicates to us. He sees things, and he starts to breathe out this revelation of the history between the ascension of Jesus, the coming of Jesus, and and uh, the the uh, days of about 68 um, A.D. and and John gives us all of these things. And the last of these visions that John gives us, as we saw last week, was the harvest of the first fruits church, the death of the first century martyrs whose blood is spilled across the land of promise. As apostate Israel turns violent against the church and kills Christians, the land flows with the blood of the martyrs. That's where we ended in chapter 14. Well, what happens after innocent blood is spilled on the land? What did God say to Cain after Cain killed his brother Abel? God said, the voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Abel's blood cried out to God for vengeance. Innocent blood spilled on the ground gets the attention of the avenger. In Numbers, when God was setting up the society of Israel, he exhorted them to quickly punish murderers. The penalty for murder is the death of the murderer. And he warned them in Numbers 35, So you shall not pollute the land where you are for blood defiles the land. Hold on to that, that phrase, blood defiles the land. And no atonement can be made for the land, for the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of him who shed it. There's only one thing you can do when a murder has been committed. When innocent blood has been spilled, you must execute the murderer. You must do away with the murder. And that's the only way to atone for the blood on the land. And of course, Israel didn't do this consistently. They didn't do this faithfully. And so after they get kicked out of the land, God tells them in Ezekiel, therefore I poured out my fury on them for the blood that they had shed on the land. Why do we get kicked out of land? Because the innocent blood was spilled on the land and you didn't do anything about it. In fact, you participated in it. So my fury on them, he says, for the blood they shed on the land and for their idols with which they had defiled it. When innocent blood is spilled on the land, it calls up the avenger of blood. If a society doesn't punish the murderer, God will punish the land and uh, God will punish the whole nation. This is why we care so much about the sin of abortion. That's why we talk about it. That's why we pray against it. This is why we support causes which bring it to an end, we pray, in our day, which will cause it to cease, which will defund it and make it such an unthinkable option. There's so many other, other things. This is why we care about this. It's not because we, uh, uh, you know, hate women in difficult situations. You know, people criticize Christians being so fixated on things. Why are we so fixated and why do we have such a big problem with abortion? It's because we hear the voice of God. The innocent blood spilled on the land defiles the land. It corrupts the land and God will avenge. And, and he's just passing by us. He's just passing by us. You think judgment's not coming. For three thousand children murdered a day in this nation since the 70s, do you think that's not going to happen? Well, we know, and we can read in God's word that innocent blood spilled on the land defiles the land; it pollutes the land, and so we should be, um, you know, uh, surprised that God hasn't judged us much more severely, much more quickly uh, than than He has. Well, at the end of chapter 14, the blood of the martyrs has gone from the north to the south. All, all the, uh, the, the blood is, is running through the land. It's up to the bridles of the horses. The land is saturated with the blood of the innocent at the end of chapter 14. So the next section of Revelation is gonna to have to do with the swift and just judgment of the avenger of blood on the lands. So let's pick up in chapter 15, verse one. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. Seven angels having the seven last plagues for in them, the wrath of God is complete. It's complete in the sense that this is his last dealing with Israel. After this, he's done with Jerusalem. He's done with the temple, with uh, the, the judgment. This is, this is it. Um, what's coming here. And verse two, and I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. Last week we saw there were 144,000 standing with the lamb on the top of Mount Zion and they were singing and these, uh, these have been slain, these have been martyred, and are now standing in God's presence just like they were promised. In the last chapter, uh, they were promised, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. They now rest with Jesus. They now rest in his presence just as was, was promised them. They're standing now over the sea of glass, which is mingled with fire. Well, let's quickly reacquaint ourselves with the architecture and the furniture of God's holy temple that we've already seen here in the book of Revelation. Now we are familiar with what heaven's courts look like because we know what the tabernacle looks like and, and we know what the temple looks like. The tabernacle and temple were reflections of God's heavenly courts. And um, so uh, the, the tabernacle and temple were set up as reflections of God's heavenly throne room, and John is invited up into the space in chapter four. If you want to glance back there, John is called up into heaven and he sees a door standing open. Heaven, heaven's courts have a veil. Heaven's courts have a door, just like the earthly uh, sanctuaries had. And then, and then in verse two, he sees a throne set in heaven. uh, The the throne is the heavenly ark, the heavenly mercy seat. And in verse four, around the throne are 24 elders. Who are these 24 elders that are sitting around the throne? Well, later in uh, Revelation, we read about that great garden city that descends and on the gates of that city, which of, there are 12 gates of the city, are the 12 names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And on the foundations of that city are written the 12 names of the apostles. Of course, 12 and 12 are 24. So are these 24 elders, are, are the ones who sit on these thrones around the, around the throne of God, are these the patriarchs and the apostles? Is that, is that who's sitting there? Well, maybe eventually, But when John writes this, most of the apostles are still alive. So they can't be sitting on thrones in heaven at this point. Then these thrones must be occupied by angelic representatives at first. And at some point, these thrones are transferred to the patriarchs and the apostles. There is a transition that takes place. Angels rule in man's place until man gets there. And there's this language of transition throughout the Bible where angels govern and angels rule, but eventually men take their place. In uh, in, in Hebrews and Galatians, we read about the law being mediated to us through angels. Uh, now we have a more perfect mediator. Now, since uh, the Lord Jesus has come, he has spoken the word to us. Psalm 8 says that man is made a little lower than the angels, but that man's destiny is to be over creation, enthroned over creation. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he says, don't you know that we will judge angels? So, so there's a transition at some point in the transition from the old heavens and old earth to the new heavens and new earth. and some, In some way, in some fashion, angels yield to people in the heavenlies. Of course, as we saw last week, before the sacrifice of Jesus, there were no men in heaven. Without the work of Jesus, man couldn't be in God's presence. So all of these thrones and all of these seats and all of these positions of authority in heaven had to be filled by angels. But because of the work of Jesus, heaven gets populated by men. I've said often that one of my favorite Sundays of the year is Ascension Sunday because I love to preach on this truth that there is a man exalted over all creation. Don't forget, Jesus was fully God, and yet he is also fully man. And wonder of wonders, God has exalted human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ and has enthroned a man at his right hand. That is incredible to me. That is unbelievable to me. And then we read in Ephesians that he has raised us up together with him and has seated us in the heavenly places. So that men, human flesh rules from heaven in the person of Jesus and then by extension through his saints. So what we've witnessed over the last several chapters of our study is that the 24 angels that are around the throne in Revelation 4 have gotten up. They've gotten up one by one. They've left their thrones, and they've gone and done their work. There are 24 major angelic acts in the book of Revelation. Now, there are many angels who do things and say things, but there are 24 big acts done by angels in the book of Revelation. There are four angels Riding horses for judging angels, there are four guardian angels standing at the corners of the earth. There are two strong angels, one which we 've already read about, one which we are going to still. There are seven trumpet angels, and there are seven angels carrying out the bowls of the seven last plagues that we 're about to read about uh, these coming out of the sanctuary and that 's what that 's what 's said about them in, in uh, fifteen six they come out of the temple they come out carrying the seven plagues so Throughout this book, the throne room has emptied out. The 24 elders, the 24 angels holding these positions have emptied out so that these thrones can be filled by men, which is what we see over in chapter 20, verse four, I saw thrones and they that sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. I saw the souls of those who've been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshiped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Angels get up out of their seats, and then heaven is populated with people over the course of the book of Revelation. And then one last feature to note, one last geographical or architectural feature of God's heavenly throne room back in chapter four is that before God's throne, there is a sea of glass. And then we get over to chapter 15 and we find that that sea is on fire. What's going on here? Well, there's a sea of glass in the earthly temple. And there's a bronze laver in the earthly tabernacle because there's a sea of glass in front of God's throne in heaven. The temple had a bronze sea and the, the, the tabernacle had a bronze laver. The temple also had bronze uh, water chariots leading out from the temple through the courtyard. So there's a sea, of, a sea of glass before the throne of God in heaven. And what this reminds us is you've always gotta pass through water to get into God's presence and into his blessing. Uh, Water is also judgment for the wicked. So the righteous pass through water and are delivered through water, but the wicked are judged by water. For example, the water of the flood carried Noah safely to the new post-flood creation. His family was carried safely over the waters, but that same water was judgment on the wicked world. And by the way, 1 Peter 3 calls that a baptism. He relates that to baptism. And later, Israel is delivered through the water of the Red Sea, which is a deliverance for them, but it's also a judgment for Pharaoh and his chariots. And also 1 Corinthians 10 calls that a baptism. They had to pass through water again at the Jordan River before conquering the land. Um, And and so there are all these places where you, you are delivered over water or delivered through water, and God uses that water also to judge the wicked. That's why, for example, when we we baptize, we use water from above and not water from below. Water from above is blessing water. It's good water. Water from below is judgment water. It's, It's generally not a good thing to be immersed in the Bible, right? Immersion is drowning. Um, Now, of course, I was immersed in baptism, and so were probably most of us over over a certain age. But if we have a preference, if we have a preference to baptize our children and baptize converts, would you rather use blessing water from above or judgment water from below? In the bronze sea in uh, Solomon's uh, tabernacle courtyard, this water was up in such a place you had to climb up to get it, to bring it back down, to purify and to cleanse and to use it for the ceremonial washing. So why did they carry it all the way up there and bring it down there, back down whenever they needed it? Why did they take it up, tote water up and pour it in there and then bring it down? Well, it's, a, it's again reminding us of the blessing of water from above and the, uh, the, blessing, of the uh, blessing of the firmament and the bronze um, uh, sea. Is, is reflection of the crystal sea that is before the throne of God. Well, all of this is relevant because when we get to chapter 15, the sea of glass is on fire. What is this? There is a lake of fire in front of God's throne. Remember what we saw last week in chapter 14, um, beginning of verse nine. "'A third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, "'If anyone worships the beast in his image "'and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, "'he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, "'which is poured out full strength "'into the cup of his indignation.'" Listen to this. "'He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone.'" in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. You see, those who are cast into eternal punishment are, 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 are punished in the presence of the angels and in the presence of the lamb and then we turn over and we read the next chapter and there's a lake of fire in front of the throne of God is the place of eternal torment at the feet of God? Is it his footstool? You get God's presence forever, like it or not. Uh, we want the presence of God forever. We enjoy his presence, but for those who are unbelieving, those who hate him, it's the worst thing ever to be in the presence of God forever and ever. But just let that thought marinate. We'll come back back to this in a few weeks when we look at the lake of fire some more, but it's just, it's something to consider and it's something to think about. There is literally a sea of fire in front of the throne of God. And what is that? What is that all about? But that brings us into the scene of God's sanctuary where the martyrs are singing with their harps. Verse three. They sing the song of Moses, the sermon of God, and the song of the Lamb saying, great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. They sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. What's the song of Moses? Well, Psalm 90 is a song of Moses. At the end of Deuteronomy, he teaches, teaches the children of Israel a song so that they'll remember the covenant in all of their generations. That's another song of Moses. But these people have just been redeemed. They've just been delivered. They've just had their exodus and their tormentors are about to be judged. So it could be that they're singing the song of Moses that Moses sang after the Red Sea, after the Red Sea closed up on Pharaoh. And they're standing here singing over the waters of judgment, singing the song of God's victory on their behalf. Don't miss the fact that they're singing about their king. Just and true are your ways, O king of the saints. Our dispensationalist friends will say that when Jesus returns, he, re- he will return as king. He will return to rule as king. And we're just waiting for that to happen so that he'll come back and rule. Um, according to the song of these saints and according to what happens at the ascension, Jesus is reigning as king right now. Jesus is already reigning as king. When he comes back, he comes as judge. That's an important distinction to keep, that he comes as judge, but right now he's already ruling as king. And let's not uh, forget that. He is king now. Verse five, After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. The, 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 The... The temple of the tabernacle of the testimony is open. The testimony is God's law, all 10 commandments written in stone. And the fact that this is exposed means that the heavenly ark is opened and the inner court of the sanctuary is exposed. The doors have flung open wide. All the veils have been lifted. The lid of the ark is off. And now all of mankind, and especially the land of Israel, the people of the land are exposed face to face with God's law. This is not good news for the wicked. All of the barriers that formerly protected us from the wrath of God for our sin, all those barriers are down. Now, if you're in Christ, there's no problem. Expose the law to me and expose me to the law. If I'm in Christ, I love God's law and I am shielded from the penalties and the judgment of the law because I am in Christ. I am in Christ. But if you are not in Christ, then to be exposed to the law is to be fully exposed to all the penalties and the curses of law breaking without that shield, without that barrier. That is the sacrifice of Christ. So everything is opened up here and this is a negative revelation for the wicked, for the apostate, for the covenant breaking. This is not a good thing that this is opened up for the the land and for the apostates on the land. See, just like water is good for us, but water is bad for those who are being judged, so now this intimacy with God, which we crave, we want intimacy with God, it's a good thing for us, it's a terrible thing as far as the wicked are concerned, it's a frightful thing to come face to face with God, but now it's all opened up and they're going to be exposed to the full force of his fury over sin. Verse 6, And out of the temple came the seven angels having the seven plagues clothed in pure, bright linen and having their chests girded with uh, golden bands. These seven angels empty out of the sanctuary. They leave their thrones to pour out these bowls, these vials of wrath on the land. They come out dressed like Jesus. In Revelation 1, Jesus had a gold band around his chest and now they have a gold band around their chests, Jesus is the angel of Yahweh coming to execute his judgments on the land, and so now they're going to follow in his steps. They're gonna carry out his work of judgment. But they're also dressed like the high priest. They're wearing pure, bright linen. Other places in Revelation we read about white robes, but here we read what they're made of. They're made, the, the, the angels are wearing pure, bright linen, which was the uniform of the high priest one day a year, on the Day of Atonement. Now, ordinarily, when the high priest ministered before the face of God, he ministered in garments of glory and beauty. He had a woolen outer garment. He had a linen undergarment and he had a breastplate and he had a helmet of gold and of precious gems and precious jewels. So with the wool, he represented the animal world. With the linen, he represented the vegetable world. With the gold and with the gems, he represented the the mineral world. And so there he brings all of creation before the face of God. As he worships before the face of God, all of creation comes with him, He wears creation on his body as he comes into the presence of the Lord, except on the day of atonement. And on the day of atonement only, he dresses in all linen as he brings the sins of Israel, all the sins of his own family, his own sins all rolled together. And he carries them into the most holy place with bowls of blood of the sacrifices to make atonement. And he brings incense to intercede on behalf of the nation. And then he goes out and he lays his hand on the head of a goat. He confesses all the iniquities of Israel and the goat is led away into the wilderness and let go, symbolically carrying away the sins of Israel year after year after year. And Yahweh sees the blood on the ark and he passes over year by year, passes over and doesn't judge. He doesn't pour out his bowls of wrath on Israel because uh, there is a covering. But the sacrifices of bulls and goats were only temporary. They were only temporary coverings for sin. And the high priest is a sinner himself and he is an imperfect an imperfect intercessor. Hebrews 10 says the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins. So eventually all the sins of the people and all the sins of Israel have to be placed on the head of a sufficient sacrifice we need a perfect high priest to go in before the presence of God for us. And if we aren't attached to that high priest and attached to that sacrifice, then all of our sins are going to come back on us. And that's exactly what Jesus warned Israel about back in Luke uh, chapter 11. Jesus said um, that the blood of all the prophets, which was shed from the foundation of the world will be required of this generation from the blood of Abel "'To the blood of Zechariah, "'who perished between the altar and the temple, "'yes, I say to you, "'it shall be required of this generation.'" All of the sins of Israel have been stored up. All of the innocent blood has cried out for the, from, the, from the ground. Therefore, all of the wrath is about to be dumped back out onto apostate Israel. These angels go out from the sanctuary with bowls dressed like high priests on the day of atonement because there's about to be a reverse day of atonement. Uh, there's about to be judgment on the land, not the high priest going in to make atonement, but now the, the angel's coming out with bowls of wrath, bowls of judgment, and this judgment that's coming, it's not gonna be on the sea beast, it's not gonna be on Rome, it's not gonna be on the dragon, it's not gonna be on Satan, that comes later. This judgment that's coming is the judgment on apostate Israel. And let's finish this chapter, the last two verses. Verse seven, then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with the smoke from the glory of God and from his power and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. What do they carry out of the sanctuary of God? They carry out these flaming bowls of wrath like hot lava fire soup that they're bringing out, cups of wrath, bowls of wrath. And then once they leave, the temple is full of the smoke of the incense. Remember in chapter six and eight, the prayers of the martyrs are going up and they're filling the heavenly temple. And they're filling it with incense this whole time as they pray, how long, O Lord, how long holy and true until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. And now the 144,000 have joined in and the prayers and the petitions are going up. And Romans chapter eight tells us as the, the spirit uh, intercedes for us and the spirit matches and meets us in our prayer and mixes with our prayers and sounds, the glory of the Lord has filled the temple along with the incense of the prayers of the saints. And, and the glory cloud is, is, is so uh, filling The sanctuary that no one was able to enter the temple. At least two other places that we read about the temple being filled with smoke and nobody can enter into it it's at the dedication of the tabernacle and at the dedication of the temple, and there's some similarities on the day of Pentecost. As well. These were all signs of God's gracious presence in his sanctuary, his blessing, and his approval of these sanctuaries. It's also a revelation of his wrath against sinners. If you sin against his law, fiery, Judgment is going to break out from the sanctuary against those who rebel against him, against those who abuse his people. And that's exactly what's about to happen in chapter 16. The blood of the martyrs cries out from the ground. The avenger of blood is coming to mete out his judgments, which we'll see next week. And as we head into this next section, we're gonna spend some time, as the intensity of these judgments ramp up, we're gonna spend a lot of time talking about and thinking about the wrath of God. And that's not something we're typically eager to think about. Who wants to sit around and think about the wrath of God? We enjoy talking about the love of God and the acceptance and the peace of God for very good reason. I love talking about the love of God, but let's not forget that the cross, which is the supreme demonstration of the love of God is also at the same time, the supreme demonstration of how much God hates sin. The cross is a picture of what sin costs. When we look at the cross, it is there that we learn to truly evaluate the cost of sin. Look at the cross and see this is what sin does. This is what sin requires to pay it off. And this is something we have to be consistently reminded of regularly so that we don't forget it, so that we don't become casual with sin because we're inclined to tease around the edges of sin to take sin lightly, to be super casual about our own sin. We forget that every sin we commit is a sin for which Jesus died. Every single sin, the one you did this morning, the one you did right after that, and the one you did on the car in the car on the way here, every sin is a sin for which Jesus died. And it's not something that we take, we take lightly. It's not something that we, that we just say, oh, well, God will forgive me. Oh, I just, oh, I, uh, yeah, God understands. God will forgive me. Um, and we, we, we have this problem where we take our sins so casually. And we also live in a world around people for whom the word sin, it's not in their vocabulary. They will not openly acknowledge their guiltiness before God, nor do they take his wrath seriously, nor do they live as if they're going to stand before him in judgment. Your ordinary, polite, unbeliever friend will be patient with you when you try to explain the gospel to them. When you tell them how your life has been transformed by the Lord Jesus, you'll tell them what the Lord Jesus has done for you. And they'll say something like, well, I'm happy that you found something that works for you. It's just not for me. I just want to remain neutral. And you know, I'm I'm happy for you, but, but it's not for me. I'll just stay out of it. (laughs) Would that you could remain neutral if, if only we could be so casual and indifferent. But here's the truth that we must all comprehend as we see these angels pouring out of this sanctuary with bowls of wrath, is that no one escapes the judgment and the wrath of God for sin. Everyone must answer for their sin. And many places of the Bible, not just here, but there are many places that talk about bowls of wrath or cups of wrath that has everyone's name on it. We sang about it in our chanted Psalm last week, Psalm 75. For in the hand of Yahweh, there is a cup and the wine is red. It is fully mixed and he pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. The prophet Isaiah talks about this cup in Isaiah 51. He says, awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk at the hand of Yahweh, the cup of his fury, you have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and drained it out. There is no one to guide her among all the sons she has brought forth, nor is there anyone who takes her by the hand among the sons she has brought up. These two things have come to you. Who will be sorry for you? Desolation and destruction, famine and sword. By whom will I comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of the streets like an antelope in a net. They are full of the fury of Yahweh, the rebuke of your God. You see, as we read about this and we hear about uh, uh, this, this cup of wrath, as we watch these angels pour out of the sanctuary, carrying bowls of wrath, you and I both know deep down inside that, that when God describes his flaming fury over rebellion and his holy offense over sin, that you and I deserve to drink that cup because we know how grievously we have transgressed the law of God. Not a day goes by where we do not offend God's holiness. We sin continually and it would be entirely just for a cup of judgment that is marked for the wicked to be our cup. And at the same time, we also understand that the Lord Jesus was the one man who has ever lived on the earth in all of history who did not deserve to drink God's cup of wrath whatsoever. He kept the entirety of his father's law perfectly without sin. And so with that in mind, we can sense the revulsion, the horrible prospect that faced him when he prayed, Father, please take this cup away from me if it be your will. Anything but this, anything This is how terrible the wrath of God is. That cup contains the pure, white, hot, liquid inferno of God's disgust and hatred for sin. And Jesus says anything but this. He sweats blood just thinking about it. And yet he drinks it for you and for me. Friend, this bowl of wrath that had your name on it has been poured out on Jesus. Jesus has drank the cup of wrath that had your name on it. And to show us this on the cross, after his work is finished, he says, I'm thirsty. And then he drinks vinegar mixed with gall, mixed with wormwood. He drinks the curse. He drinks the toxic poison of the curse. That's not a refreshing drink at all, but he drinks it. And so I don't have to drink the cup of wrath that should be poured out on me. Jesus took it and he drank it up. I know, it's not, I know it's not fun. I know it's not delightful to consider his wrath. Yes, it is terrible. Yes, it is unthinkable. Yes, it is unbearable. Yes, it is nauseating. And Jesus bore it all. And so Psalm 116 asks, what shall I render to Yahweh for all of his benefits toward me? I will take the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. He has taken the cup of wrath so that we can take the cup of salvation. He, God, does not pour out anything on the earth that he is not willing to take on himself through his son, Jesus. And so as we contemplate God's wrath over the next several weeks, do it in this humble way so that we learn to hate our sins the way God hates our sins. I want to think God's thoughts after him and I want to live in such a way that I have the same intense, pure, white, hot hatred for my sin that God has for my sin and to put them away and to call on his name and to continue filling up his sanctuary with the incense of our prayers. And we will do do so if God wills. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your spirit that guides us into it. We pray that these truths might rattle around in our heads and our hearts, that we would keep these things with us as we work and study and play and rest, and that you would continue to grow us and mature us through the continual study of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.